0: Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Someone fatally stabbed Stacy Stanton inside her apartment on February third. This was violent. It was brutal.
0: On February third, nineteen ninety, someone brutally murdered twenty-eight-year-old Stacy Stanton inside of her second-story apartment in North Carolina then cleaned up and disappeared. Residents of Manio have lived in fear. For 30 years, Stanton's killer has had one face and one name. North Carolina investigators and Manio police believe that someone is Clifton Spencer. But his prejudice. They absolutely had tunnel vision that it was the black man who killed the white woman. Keeping an innocent man convicted. They even know now, some of them old skogies or them old good old boys, they know this man didn't do that. And covering up more than one crime. That's feel bad for that guy. I just really seriously
1: don't think he did
0: that. This is Counterclock, the investigation into the murder of Stacey Stanton. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. To start off this episode, I want to be clear, I'm not accusing anyone of any crime. I'm simply going to lay out facts that, both standing alone and combined, reveal several ways Denise Johnson's life and the people who knew her overlapped with Stacey Stanton. After years of research on both cases, I've connected dots within the testimony from people I've interviewed for both women's cases. I encourage you to listen to everything in this episode for yourself and then make up your own mind. And if you're new to CounterClock and you haven't listened to season one, I can't encourage you enough to go back and listen to all of Denise's story. After almost a year of investigating Stacy's murder— I'd heard Denise Johnson's name brought up a few times. The Outer Banks is a pretty tight-knit community, and according to everyone I've spoken with, it was even smaller during the 1990s. So I've always had this lingering suspicion that maybe it was possible these women's lives crossed paths. Almost every person I interviewed in season one was living on the Outer Banks when both Stacy and Denise were alive. So I thought one way I could see if there was any overlap was to show my sources in Denise's case a few photos of Mike, Patty, and people in their inner circle. A lot of the images were still frames from the 1990 archived news footage of the Manio Police press conference after Stacy's murder. These pictures are on our website if you want to take a look. Now, using these photos, I went back to the people I interviewed for Counterclock Season 1, who knew Denise Johnson or lived in Kill Devil Hills in the 1990s. I asked all of them if they recognized anyone in these photos. I chose to use the old photos of Mike, Patty, and the others because there was no point in showing my sources from Season 1 photos of how these individuals look now. It's been 30 years and they've aged. I wanted my sources from season one to see how these individuals looked in the 90s, and maybe that would help jog their memories. The first person I talked with that I'd interviewed in season one was Teresa Rogers. Teresa was the night clerk working at the Amco gas station in Kill Devil Hills. That's where Denise Johnson was last seen before her death. Teresa remembers clearly that Denise was inside the store and made a purchase around 1.15 in the morning on July 13, 1997. There's also a receipt that Kill Devil Hills police say they have which proves that. Teresa positively identified Mike Brandon's photo as someone who frequently came into the convenience store in 1997 she knew mike's name was mike as soon as she saw the picture and just in case you think i was leading her i want you to know i made sure not to tell teresa who it was before sending the images to her and i sent it before episode one of this season ever aired so teresa would have had no way of knowing what case i was currently working on to me Teresa's answer confirmed that Mike did go to Kill Devil Hills often and for sure had been seen at the convenience store near Denise's house on several occasions in 97. Teresa said, though, she couldn't remember Mike ever being with Denise on any particular visit. She said she didn't think they were friends or anything like that. What's also interesting is that Teresa Rogers recognized Patty Rose's photo from 1990 as well, but wasn't sure of her name at first. When I then told Teresa Patty's name, Teresa said that helped her memory, and she then confirmed she believed the woman in the photo was Patty Rowe. Teresa doesn't have any distinct memories of Patty coming into the store in 97, and she doesn't believe Patty was the woman following Denise around inside the store in the hours before Denise was killed. But one thing Teresa was very adamant about, was that she swore that Denise's roommate, Karen Bittinger, came into the store on a regular basis with this guy, Mike, back in 1997. Teresa remembers the two of them buying cigarettes and beer together several times and thought that they were definitely friends. With Teresa so sure that there was a connection between Mike and Karen, my next obvious stop was to interview Karen again. When I texted Karen the exact same pictures I showed Teresa Rogers, Karen immediately called me, and she said that she didn't recognize Mike as someone she knew well, but just said that he looked familiar. She couldn't identify Patty's photo, and said she didn't think Patty or Mike ever hung out with Denise. Moving on, the next person I checked in with was Jeff Magruder, one of Denise's former long-term boyfriends. He's someone who was very involved in Denise's life, even after they'd broken up in the spring of 1997. Jeff said he and Denise parted ways for good not long before her murder, but their relationship was amicable, and they remained good friends. He says several times Denise said she wanted to get back together with him, but Jeff didn't want to. When I spoke with Jeff earlier this year, we discussed the photos I'd sent him of Mike, Patty, and some of the people associated with them. He wasn't sure he knew any of them and couldn't put any names with their faces for sure. When I told him the names of the people in the pictures, Jeff still didn't know if he recognized them. But what he did say made me take pause. Jeff said that in early summer of 1997, when Denise was looking for a roommate and she put that ad in the newspaper, she vetted a few other people before eventually agreeing to let Karen Biddinger live with her. Jeff says one of the people that contacted Denise before she chose Karen was a man named Mike. Jeff says he never knew this Mike guy's last name, but he knew he was supposed to be from the Outer Banks area. Even more interesting is that Jeff said this Mike guy wanted the room for rent so bad because he'd recently taken a liking to Denise, a strong liking. Jeff said that Denise mentioned that this Mike was a little too interested in renting the room from her, and he'd been telling people in town that he wanted to be with Denise. So Jeff advised Denise to tell this Mike guy no. Jeff couldn't positively identify the photo of Mike Brandon as being the Mike that was interested in renting Denise's room because, like he said, he didn't even know his last name and he'd never met him. The only other thing Jeff could tell me was that he remembered back in 1997 that the Mike guy was known to use cocaine and other drugs and he worked on and off selling crabs to the restaurant that Karen Bittinger worked at. Now that detail on its own isn't that significant, but when you compare it with what Teresa Rogers, the gas station clerk said, there's a connection. Teresa said that the Mike who she positively identified as Mike Brandon was friends with Karen. So it's possible to think that maybe the Mike who Jeff says sold crabs to the restaurant Karen worked at could in fact be Mike Brandon, but I'll admit, That is just me speculating. However, my suspicions only grew stronger when I spoke with members of the Johnson family. When I called Donnie Johnson, one of Denise's older sisters who most of you know well from season one, she revealed something to me that told me I was on the right track. As a journalist, I've always been fairly organized with where to find things when I put them away or leave them. But becoming a mom, that was a whole other ball game. I feel like I've accumulated way more stuff and for a long time, I just didn't know how to store it all. But then I found organizing magic with smart labels. Smart Labels are the QR code stickers that have changed my life and are likely gonna change yours. They help you organize your stuff in storage around the house or in your storage unit. And all you have to do is put one of the QR code stickers on a box or tote, scan the sticker with the Smart Labels app and enter what's going in the tote. You can add pictures of your stuff and everything. So when you're looking for that one specific thing you can't find, all you have to do is search in the app, and it will tell you where you put the tote, what color the QR code sticker is, and what the four-character code on the sticker is, so you know exactly where to find your stuff. Get your labels today by searching for Smart Labels, one word, on Amazon. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. Just a better way to watch TV. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Never fight over who gets to pick what to watch. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like ID, Lifetime, and MTV. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash counterclock. That's phil dot TV slash counterclock to binge all your favorite murder mysteries now. Donnie Johnson is one of Denise Johnson's older sisters, and someone who was heavily involved in both law enforcement's investigation and my own reinvestigation into Denise's unsolved murder. Earlier this year, we sat down at her kitchen table and I showed her the photos of Mike and Patty. I didn't tell her the names of the people in the photos, and I didn't preface our interview with any information about a potential overlap with Stacy and Denise's cases. I didn't want to influence her at all. But Donnie recognized Mike's photo right away, and she said she believed that she and Denise had an interaction with him prior to Denise's death.
1: When I was at her house one evening, we were just sitting outside talking. This guy pulls up, and it looked, that's, you know, what I recalled, this guy looked familiar. And he had been wanting to go out with Denise, and Denise wasn't sure about it. And he kept asking her out, you know, and I kind of just stood behind Denise because he was kind of kept asking her, you know, I really want to go out. Come on, say you will. Come on, come on. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'd rather be friends. And, you know, he just seemed to not want to take the no for about five minutes. And finally, I kind of just said, you know, we're visiting, so you need to go because, you know, we're just hanging out. and So he left. But that's who... That looked like to me, and I I almost want to say, she. well, I'm pretty sure she said his name was Mike.
0: It was at this point talking to Donnie that I knew I could really be on to something. Donnie says her and Denise's interaction with the guy named Mike happened in 1995, two years before Denise's murder. Donnie stared at the photo for several minutes and continued to try and remember as much as she could about that conversation.
1: Well, his hair wasn't that bushy in when I saw, but just his facial features. He looks like that guy that, you know, drove up in the car. Now I can't be sure because it was kind of, it was night and, you know, it was dark. But I do recall her saying it was Mike, this guy named Mike who wants to date me. And I just said, well, Denise, you know, you don't have to date everybody that asks you out. You don't have to go out with them if you don't want to.
0: Donnie's fairly clear identification of Mike was seriously amazing. But to me, it wasn't enough. I mean, it's been 30 years. It was dusk or maybe even getting dark when she and Denise could have had this interaction with the Mike guy. I really just wanted more proof. I wanted some sort of record that tied Mike Brandon and Patty Rowe to anywhere near Norfolk Street in Kill Devil Hills. So I went searching, and that's when I found it. In the 1990s, Patty's mother lived in Nags Head, a town about 10 or 15 minutes from Denise's house. Now, that's close, but not close enough to make any kind of real connection. Like I said, the Outer Banks is kind of small— So I kept looking, and that's when I discovered an undeniable and almost unbelievable connection. According to property and rental records, in 1997, Patty's younger brother, Ray Griggs, lived at 1200 West Durham Street in Kill Devil Hills. That home is on the same street you take to get to Denise's house on Norfolk Street. Ray's former address is literally a two-minute walk from Denise's front door. There's a map of how close these addresses are on our website. You have to go and look for yourself. I couldn't help but wonder if it was possible that Mike and Patty, in some weird version of events, could have been in Kill Devil Hills on July 13, 1997, at, say, Ray's house. Is it possible that Mike and Patty could have crashed at Ray's several times in 1997, either together or separate? It's documented in police reports that they had a history of crashing at Patty's mother's home in Nagshead, which wasn't that far away. And according to his arrest records, Mike was a habitual cocaine and alcohol user throughout the 90s. Mike's former attorney was quoted in the Coastland Times newspaper in 1994 as saying that Mike, quote, had a severe drug dependency, end quote. And a former prosecutor who was quoted in that same article said Mike was known to be, quote, high on cocaine and alcohol and had been homeless for a time, end quote. In addition to all of that information, According to Susan Corrington and Joni Newman, women who were friends with Mike and Patty, they said by the time 1997 rolled around, Mike had been bouncing around from place to place because he and Patty's marriage was falling apart. According to divorce records for the couple, they'd been having serious domestic issues leading up to the summer of 97. The court filing for their divorce states they officially separated on October 1, 1997, after months of Mike not being a faithful husband, failing to provide for their son, abusing Patty, and being on drugs. Those months of his alleged bad behavior included spring and summer of 1997. When I looked up Mike's Department of Corrections record, I realized he was incarcerated a lot during the 1990s. there were two small windows of time he wasn't behind bars. One was a short period of time in 1995, and the other was a period of time he was out on supervised probation in July of 1997. According to the Department of Corrections, Mike was paroled in March of 1997 and was on that probation the entire summer as part of a drug rehabilitation program. That program was something he'd agreed to in his 1994 plea deal after committing the string of burglaries in Manio, including the two courthouse break-ins that we discussed in Episode 7. Because the courts had decided to suspend Mike's sentence for those crimes as part of his plea, he wasn't actually scheduled to go to prison for those offenses until December of 1998. So... It's completely possible that Mike Brandon was roaming free on the Outer Banks and able to interact with Denise and Donnie in 1995, as well as be in Kill Devil Hills on July 13, 1997. On top of that, there's also a tidbit of information that Teresa Johnson, one of Denise's other sisters, remembers. Deresa said in her interview with me back in 2019 that she remembered Denise telling her in November of 1996 that Denise thought someone had been on her roof or was watching her. Fall of 1996 was also the same time Denise had filed that police report with Kill Devil Hills Police Department, where she formally complained that someone was harassing her over the phone and leaving love notes on her car. I couldn't help but think about Mike's criminal history and his M.O. in almost all of his break-ins. His consistent approach to getting into buildings was that he often went in or attempted to gain entry through ceilings and windows. Is it possible he was the person Denise was complaining about on her roof? Was he lovesick for her and leaving phone messages and notes? I don't know. I can't prove any of those things but I have serious reasons to wonder. After looking over Mike's life in 1997 extensively, I also wanted to try and pinpoint Patty's whereabouts in July 1997, or at least see if anyone knew if she was in Kill Devil Hills often. So I showed my archive photos to Lori Sellers, one of Denise's good friends who hung out in the Avalon Pier Kill Devil Hills crowd in the 90s. Without me telling her any names, Lori immediately recognized Patty, as well as Ray Griggs. She went to high school with both of them. She says that Patty was an extremely jealous woman and would pick a fight at a bar with just about anyone. Lori says Patty was no stranger to the Kill Devil Hills crowd, but on a consistent basis, she didn't really see her out all that often in 1997. Ray, on the other hand, Lori did see frequently. According to his arrest records, Ray was arrested in Kill Devil Hills several times in the 90s for drunk driving, and he also had a reputation for burglaries and drug use. I attempted several times to contact Ray for this podcast, and he hasn't returned my messages. Me mentioning his criminal history is not me saying or suggesting that he has anything to do with Denise or Stacy's murders. And as far as I can tell, Ray was cooperative when investigators interviewed him in 1990 for Stacy's case. There's nothing I've read about him or in his criminal history that points to him ever being considered a suspect in either murder. However, according to SBI records, he was never given a polygraph. In my investigative research, it's really only Ray's former address on West Durham Street that puts him, and potentially his sister Patty, geographically close to Denise Johnson. Now, that could just be a total coincidence. But for me, and probably some of you, at this point in the episode, it's hard to write it off as just coincidence. If everything I've reported up until this point still isn't enough for you to be convinced there is overlap between Mike, Patty, Denise, and Stacy, you're just like me. I'm a triple, quadruple source type person. I want absolute certainty, but sometimes I can't get that, especially when we're talking about cases that are 30 and 23 years old. At least that's what I thought until one day earlier this year, I opened my inbox to read a tip that someone had sent in. This tip was about Denise Johnson's case, and at the time this came in, no episodes of season two had aired, and the tip writer was completely unaware that I was also investigating Stacey Stanton's murder. The information I read in the message made me strongly suspect that both women's murders might be connected. For so many of us, the weather is getting warmer, and that means that we're gonna say goodbye to our jackets and sweaters and say hello to shorts and tees. And this is usually around the time where a lot of us wanna update our wardrobe, but we don't wanna spend a fortune. Well, thanks to Quince, you can. Quince has items like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts for $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. I recently went on a work trip to see some of the team at AudioChuck in Indianapolis, and I had a new piece of luggage, and my husband was joining me a few days later, and we realized he didn't have a good quality piece of luggage to bring. So I went on Quince and bought him one. I'm telling you guys, this is one of the nicest piece of carry-on luggages we've ever had, and I got it on Quince. And best of all, I didn't break the bank. So get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash counterclock for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash counterclock to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash counterclock. Three weeks after Patty Rowe separated from Mike Brandon in late October of 1997, Mike was arrested for drunk driving. That immediately triggered a remand on his supervised release, and he was locked up again in the Dare County Jail. All of the leniency the courts had given him for most of the 90s, allowing him to receive suspended sentences and avoiding prison time, was gone. From the end of 1997, pretty much until the year 2001, Mike would spend years behind bars for past and current offenses. But here's where things get really weird. While Mike was sitting in jail in late October of 1997, after officially separating from Patty and getting arrested for DWI, he began talking with a former detention center staff member. This individual and I exchanged messages at the beginning of 2020, just a few weeks after season one began airing. At the time, this tipster knew that I was investigating Denise Johnson's murder, but only Denise Johnson's murder. No one knew I was also looking into Stacy's case. This tipster wrote and suggested that I look into a man named Mike Brandon regarding Denise's death. I agreed to keep this source's identity anonymous in exchange for them telling me their full story. In their message, they wrote me saying that when they were working at the Dare County Jail in the fall of 1997, Mike Brandon told them that he had been hanging out with Denise Johnson that summer and his wife, Patty, had caught him cheating. According to this jail staff member, Mike told them that a few years earlier, in 1990, he was also involved in Stacy Stanton's murder. He confessed that he'd been messing around with Stacy at the time, and Patty, who was his girlfriend, had caught him and jumped on Stacy and attacked her. Mike told this jailer that he had to finish Stacy off and clean up the crime scene. This jailer said that Mike went on to talk about Denise, and his direct quote to them was this: Quote, she caught me again and everything ended up ugly. I can't get Denise out of my head. I'm so effed up in my mind. Stacy, now Denise. She's crazy. She's crazy. I guess we both are. End quote. My source said that they knew Mike Brandon from growing up in the Outer Banks, and even though he was a career criminal and his nickname was Penitentiary, It wasn't like Mike to normally lie about something as serious as this. My source said Mike talking about two brutal murders only a few years apart in the same geographic area didn't sound made up. The tipster said that after they heard Mike's confession about having knowledge of Denise's murder and his part in Stacy's murder, they immediately told their supervisor at the jail but their supervisor didn't take them seriously and responded by reminding them that inmates lie. According to my source, nothing else was done to investigate what Mike said. Now, to play devil's advocate here, I can understand maybe why that was the case to a certain extent. To many members of law enforcement on the Outer Banks, Mike was a known convict whose credibility was dicey. To them, the question probably was, why would Mike just volunteer outlandish information like this to the jailer? They probably thought it was just penitentiary lying for the thrill of it. And that's when I stopped, and I really thought hard about it. Why? Why would Mike say what he allegedly did? What did he have to gain by confessing to helping take part in two murders? It's so out of the blue, and it did him no good to say it. Just think about it. In October, 1997, Mike was sitting in jail with a DWI charge and a guaranteed easy sentence for pleading guilty to multiple burglaries. Why would he just up and provide information that he and allegedly Patty were guilty of murdering two women? Here's Donnie Johnson's reaction when I told her about this tipster's message. For somebody to say that while sitting in jail, knowing they're going to stay in jail for a while, it just seems like an odd statement for him to make, if it is true.
1: It seems odd, and, you know, you'd have to know what his demeanor was at the time, but it wouldn't benefit him in any way to say that. It wouldn't get him out of jail. Why even bring that up if you don't know something about it? It's a strange coincidence for a guy who's sitting in jail to just bring up Denise, you know, oh, I'm, I think it's terrible what happened to her. My wife did it. You know, I mean, that's strange.
0: I didn't take it for, at face value. I still don't 100%. But for that person to have messaged me thinking I was only working on your sister's case, that...
1: It raises... <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, why why didn't this person well I wonder why the person didn't come forward a long time ago with this? And if he did, why wasn't the guy ever interviewed? The guy obviously had a lot of troubles. And I would think you would want to look into him just to eliminate him. Because, you know, if if it is the guy I saw and if, you know, you're having operating people that say he might have known Denise, why not look at at him and you know, and if you have DNA, why not test DNA against, you know, whoever you can that could be a suspect. If you have DNA and you have his DNA somewhere, you know, obviously it's his DNA somewhere if he's been incarcerated so long.
0: See if it matches. I really want to know if they looked at Mike Brandon.
1: I do too
0: as a suspect in your sister's case because there is evidence to prove that he was in the Outer Banks at that time there's people saying that they believed he could have been associated with your sister Um, he had a volatile wife
1: Yes, Yes.
0: and that's something that we've always thought was present in your sister's murder was some sort of rage between two or more people that killed Denise and You know, you don't want to speculate, but it's hard to ignore, especially because Stacey Stanton was killed in a very similar manner. I mean, when you hear the injuries to her and the injuries to your sister,
1: it's... Well, if I was, you know, I mean, in my mind, if I was in law enforcement, to me, that would just be something that you look at. Something you might, you know, because all of this time you, you don't have anything. Well, this is something maybe, just maybe.
0: If this former jailer's story even holds an ounce of truth, how, literally how, was this not investigated more? Maybe because Clifton was already in prison at this point. So, in law enforcement's mind, there wasn't a need to look for a connection between the two cases. Maybe by the end of 1997, they'd made up their minds that Stacy's killer couldn't have been Denise's killer. I'll never know at least not fully, because Kill Devil Hills Police Department has never named an official suspect or person of interest in Denise's case, or ever publicly ruled out Mike Brandon. The department also won't comment on what evidence they do or don't have as far as DNA goes. And they won't participate in any more interviews with me on Denise's case. So in the event that the detectives at KDHPD, and for that matter, agents with the SBI in 1997, didn't know about this jailer's alleged interaction with Mike, I took the liberty of informing them of this this year. I wrote a long, detailed tip and submitted it to the Dare County Community Crime Line. Hopefully, someone checking that submission page has seen it and taken it seriously. If not, I think voicing it here openly on the podcast should help get the word out. That all being said, that's it. Everything I've laid out for you in this episode is all of the information I've been able to gather, vet, and determine potentially links Mike, Patty, Denise Johnson, and Stacey Stanton. Maybe Mike is a red herring in Denise's case, a line of investigation that law enforcement chased down, but it led nowhere. But without comment from them, I don't know for sure. Maybe Mike's loose overlap with Denise and her friends and the town of Kill Devil Hills is just a product of a small community where everyone is too close. Trust me, I know from experience that's true on the Outer Banks. I could speculate all day, but what I know for sure, that is fact, is this. Seven years before Denise... Stacey Stanton was murdered inside of her apartment with fatal stab wounds to her neck. That murder weapon, as far as the police have said, has never been recovered, and the killer didn't attempt much of a cleanup to hide forensic evidence. In fact, Stacey's case has boatloads of potential forensic clues to identify the perpetrator. And after the murder, Mike Brandon made multiple attempts to break into an evidence locker, though those break-ins have never been linked by law enforcement to Stacy's murder. Fast forward a few years to July 1997, and Denise Johnson was murdered inside of her home, also with fatal stab wounds to her neck. That murder weapon has never been recovered either, and whoever killed her used fire to knock her out and attempt to obliterate much of the physical evidence. Just think about this scenario for a second. If the killer or killers in Stacy and Denise's crimes are one and the same, doesn't it seem like the way the suspect dealt with Denise's scene shows they evolved? Maybe they knew the way that they'd murdered Stacy was sloppy and reckless. Maybe when they killed Denise, they wanted to be extra sure they wouldn't have to worry about evidence in storage somewhere linking them to the crime. I know. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, and I get it, but just think about it for a second. It kind of makes sense. And remember, say you're the district attorney in 1997, and the evidence even hints to the fact that Denise Johnson's murder and Stacey Stanton's murder are connected. You automatically have to reevaluate the conviction and imprisonment of Clifton Spencer. You have to completely re-examine how the district attorney's office handled Clifton's conviction in 1990. Because there is no way he can be Denise's killer. He's in prison in 1997. If there's one thing almost everyone I've interviewed for this podcast in both seasons has said to me, It's that every time someone who was curious about either of these cases poked around, they were always told to leave them alone or let it go. As recently as last month, I've spoken with former assistant district attorneys for Dare County who say they passed along tips and information in the Denise Johnson case in recent years and they have never received any kind of follow-up from law enforcement. So many people, who have even sniffed around either of these cases for more information, have been told to stop and not look into the details any further. Now that just seems suspicious to me. I don't know, maybe there's more to this overlap theory. Or maybe it's just that, a theory. But it's one I believe has far too much evidence to ignore. And I would honestly love to know what Eric, Denise's next-door neighbor back in 1997, and his girlfriend, Teresa, have to say about this theory. Would they be able to corroborate any of it? Did they know Mike Brandon or Patty Rowe? But because they refused to talk to me regarding the investigation of Denise's murder, I will never know. I did ask Mark Wiseman, the young man from 1997 who lived with Eric up until two days before Denise's murder, the guy who was never interviewed by police. I asked him if he recognized either Patty Rowe or Mike Brandon's pictures, but he said he didn't. I think, though, the theory I've laid out for you is just all the more reason for both Eric and Teresa to speak up about what they may know or remember from back then. Because what if... Just what if they know something that could link both cases? And if that's the case, then they'd potentially be helping clear suspicion from their names. But I can't force people to talk. I can only ask that they participate in wanting to find the truth. That's the hardest part about all of this. Getting people to act against their own self-interest to figure out what the truth really is. In the event that doesn't happen, though, there's always hard evidence one can turn to. Concrete, scientific proof that could hold the key to solving who killed these women. It was a washcloth found down the street that had blood on it. How often are you going to find a washcloth with blood on it down the street from a crime scene where there's someone who's been bloodily bloody murdered? We're taking a closer look at the forensic evidence. It got to, to the point where... How could we not be able to make this case? Next week on CounterClock. The show is getting close to the season finale. And trust me, you guys are not going to want to miss these next two episodes. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to take this time to tell you that the friends and family of Clifton Spencer have created a GoFundMe page to help him raise money for his retirement and to buy his own semi-truck. Like many of you have written in to me and you want to help Clifton, you can go to his GoFundMe and donate. You can find the link on our website, counterclockpodcast.com, or on our social media pages. And while you're at it, go ahead and do me a favor and follow CounterClock Podcast on social media. You'll stay updated on these cases and check out pictures and videos related to each case. CounterClock is an AudioChuck original show. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer. And all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Ambra.